from Hebrews chapter 11, this summary. By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice the promise. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. You, you can imagine <clears throat> uh, how tense it was to try to plan a father sacrificing a son for a sermon on Father's Day. That's not a good idea most of the time. But that's what, that's where the text takes us today. And so this graphic, visceral scene of, of an old man, a hundred years old, laying his son down on the altar and getting ready to sacrifice him is so graphic and so visceral that I want to tentatively change the subject and help maybe add some context. Can I do that? You're thinking, please, please, please. <clears throat> Think about your best friend. The best friend that you ever had when you were a child goes way back. You know, it was the one that you were the closest to. And think about that person's name for a moment. I'll wait, really. You got their name? Okay, turn to the person next to you. Say the person's name. You don't need to give a biography. Just say the person's name out loud to the person back and forth. Swap that person's name. <clears throat> Okay, now, think about the reason that that person was such a good friend to you. What made that person peculiar from all of the other friends that you had? You did have other friends, didn't you? <laughs> if you had one, well, this is pretty easy exercise for you. <laughs> if, if you lined them all up, there was something peculiar about that relationship Think for a moment, what made that friendship peculiar? What kind of set it apart from all the other friendships? Do you have that in mind? Boil it down to a sentence or to a word or two. Do you have it in your mind? Some of you never thought about this before. It's going to be a long morning for you. All right, now turn to the person and say that. See, this was the unique thing. It's one sentence again. It's not a psychological interview. It's one sentence. All right, now swap, say the other person, I mean back and forth. We hardly think about friendships today because in our culture, two people loving each other almost always has sexual or erotic overtones. The idea of friendship has been lost in the idea of sensuality. But when you go back a couple thousand years, what you notice in reading the philosophers is that the love between two friends was the pinnacle of all sorts of love. It was not the erotic love between two lovers. It was the love of friends without sexuality. But in our culture, that's all been subverted because of the drive, the sexual drive. 
And in our culture, then every word like intimacy or affection gets changed to a different meaning. Now the terms become loaded and the idea of friendship just sort of fades away. So try, if you can, to revive some of the basic need for a good, true, deep friends. And ask yourself what makes for that kind of a relationship. And ask yourself how many of those kinds of people do I have in my life? Friendship is not a love affair. C.S. Lewis writes in his book on the four loves, in some ways it is the furthest thing from a love affair. For in a love affair, the lovers are always talking to each other about their love, but in a friendship, friends almost never talk about their friendship. In a love affair, he says, it is two people standing face to face, belonging, involved in the other But in a friendship, it is two people standing side by side belonging to something else. Are you tracking? And so the friendship is never so much about the other person. It is a union of two people about something else. If there is no something else, then the friendship will quickly diminish. It becomes utilitarian. Which is why people who keep wanting to make friends can never make friends. Because they don't want anything but friends. And so they can never lose themselves to something more important than just finding a friend. But if you could, for a moment, find someone who shared your heart and your passion and your interest. And you could side by side face something else. Then there are the grounds for true friendship. So friendship is always about something else, never just the other person. But it's not primarily about getting something from somebody else. I don't mean to imply that when you are in a deep friendship, that person does not give you things and you do not give them things. I'm simply saying that the giving and the sharing is done within the larger context of the friendship itself. You say, well, what is this an exercise on friendship? This is church. No, see, this is why we have such a hard time in a relationship with God. Because we cannot hardly think of a relationship with God outside of our deficiency, something I need, and His benefit, something He can provide. And so when you think about it, most of our relationship with God has never gotten beyond the deficiency benefit ceiling. Are you with me? You can hardly have a conversation with God without thinking about what He could possibly do for you, a person with that much power. I mean, why would you waste a conversation on something else? You see what I mean? And what happens is it limits the relationship. This is why some of you can't have friendships with rich people. 
Because every time you're in a room with them, all you can think about is what they have and how you might get some of that. It's why some of you can't have a relationship with powerful people. Because every time you have a conversation, you're thinking about leveraging that friendship to get something else. You tracking? Students do this with professors. They can't have a real friendship with a professor because it's always about the grade. And until you move beyond that into a shared compassion with that person, you can't really have a friendship. I have a hard time making friends and marrying because people see a preacher as a holy person. And so they think every friendship with me is somehow going to make them more holy. Till I say, no, just so you know, being my friend does not increase your chances of going to heaven. <laughs> They're like, okay, see ya. <laughs> you see it? It limits the relationship. And where am I going with this? Until the terms of the friendship change, There cannot be a genuine friendship. I did not just say that we have to learn to be better friends. I said we have to learn to be different friends. Which leads us into this Shocking episode in Genesis chapter 22. What God asks of Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 is not just extraordinary. It breaks the pattern of the relationship that they had so far. You'll see why in a moment. And yet, and yet, when you put it in its context, it is not extraordinary at all. It is the next logical step in an ongoing friendship between God and Abraham. Are you tracking with me? And so God is taking Abraham in this relationship to a place where he has not taken him before. And while it is fully within the trajectory of where this relationship is going, he asks for something in Genesis 22 that seems extraordinary. And if Abraham can do it, then the grounds of their relationship has changed. Ours is better too. Let me give you a quick overview, all right? It's quiet in here. Are you guys there? I'm going to do a timeline. This is the timeline of Abraham's life. We're going to go back to Genesis 12, and I'm going to rip through these things really fast and try to show in about three minutes or, let, well, 30 minutes. Or well, yeah, you get the idea uh, how this relationship is changing and what that calls from us. How many of you are somewhat familiar with Abraham's story? Can I see your hand? Oh, that helps tremendous. Thank you. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham to a land that I will show you, and he asks for simple obedience. Chris made this point abundantly clear. 
And if I were to put a label on top of Genesis chapter 12, I would simply call it this, let go and don't be afraid. Let go and don't be afraid. Are you with me? A few chapters later, in Genesis chapter 15, God comes back to Abraham a second time and says, look up to the stars and count them if you can. That's how many children that you're going to have. That's how many will come from your legacy. And all God asks for is for Abraham to believe the promise. That's all. He didn't say you got to do anything. He just says, this is what I'm going to do. He didn't even say, you better believe this. He just says, this is what I'm going to do. And in Genesis 15, verse 6, it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so if I were to put a label over Genesis 15, it would simply say, take hold grab hold and believe the impossible. Are you with me? So first he said to him, let go and don't be afraid. And then he said, take hold and believe the impossible. And then a couple chapters later in Genesis 17, God reappears again to Abram. And this time he says, walk before me and be blameless. Now, you should take note of this because this is the first time in the relationship with God that the friendship is starting to change. In chapter 12 and chapter 15, God is speaking solely about what He's going to do, but in chapter 17, God starts to ask for something in return. And so the language becomes reciprocal. God says, in fact, this is what I will do. I will give you much fruit from your legacy, but this is what I need you to do. Keep my covenant and circumcise the oldest. All of the, all of the males. You hear it? Do you hear the language? Okay, I know it's 8.30. You hear the language? Yeah, there's now we're asking for something in return. And so if I, were to, if I were to put something over this chapter, it would be walk with me and keep our covenant. Twice, he says, this is a covenant between me and you. Chapter 17, verse 2 and verse 7. But if you go back to chapter 15, verse 18, he says, this is my covenant. But in chapter 17, he says, this is our covenant. Are you with me? The next chapter, 18, God comes back again. And we alluded to this last week. And he says, you're going to have the child a year from now. And Sarah laughs. And God says, yes, you did laugh. Hold that laugh. I'll be back in a year, and we'll all be laughing. That's a really rough, bad translation of what he said. But what happens right after that is even more intriguing to me. Watch what happens next. While the three visitors who are talking to Abraham and Sarah turn and start heading towards Sodom and Gomorrah, it says, the Lord stands 
facing Abraham. No translation in the Bible can stand the language, and so they've all changed it to say, Abraham was left standing before God, but the earliest translations say God was left standing in front of Abraham. Now you have a sovereign standing in front of a mortal, and God says to himself, shall I tell him what I'm about to do? In this moment, God starts to weigh the friendship that he has with him. God looks back at the way Abram so far has done everything he told him to do. He let go and he wasn't afraid. And then he took hold of something and he believed the impossible. And then he was walking with God and he was keeping the covenant. But in chapter 18, God thinks to himself, can I trust him? Should I tell him what I'm about to do? And you can sense the friendship that God and Abraham has go to another level. And so God tells him. He says, I'm going to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah and I'm going to check it out. I'm going to see if everything they've told me is true. If it's not true, I'll know it. And if it is true, I'll know it. And there is a pause. It is almost as if God looks at Abram in the eye and says, you just going to let me go? Are you going to say something? Now Abram talks to the Lord and says, why would you destroy the righteous and the wicked? That's not your nature. The future will always look back and say, you can't tell the difference. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? Why would you do this? If you can find 50 people, will you not destroy it? God says, all right, find 50. 50 righteous people in that town and I won't destroy them. Abram waits for a moment and says, How about 45? (laughs) It's a beautiful story. You see this negotiating going on with the sovereign God. This is one who a few moments ago said, this is what I'm going to do. And now here in chapter 18, the friendship is so good that Abram thinks, bet I can get him down. He says, can you go 40? God says, I'll do 40. Abram says, 30? Lord says, 30. 20. All right, 20. Abram parses the next ask. (laughs) You can do what you want. 10? And the Lord says, if you can find 10 people, In that town who are righteous, I won't destroy them. If I were to write a label over chapter 18, I would call it, talk with me. 
Get in between me and somebody else. Think of it as the ministry of intercession. Are you tracking? Which leads to the last two troubling scenes. The first one is not troubling at all. In Genesis chapter 21, Abraham and Sarah conceive and they give birth to a child whose name is Laughter. And as I said last week, in those days, people named their children after the deity. And so it's possible, though we don't know for sure, that what he laughs means is actually God laughs. But God is not the only one laughing. Sarah is laughing. Abraham is laughing. And in chapter 21, when she has the child, she says, now the whole world will laugh with me. <laughs> Here is the promised one. Here is the thing that only God could do. Here's my gift. Here is what every 20-year-old first-time parent talks about all the time. <laughs> you get in a room with 20-somethings who had their first baby, and it's like there is no world. There's just me and the baby. Like, really, there are other things going on. But it's a, we did it. You did it. It's what you do when you have children. There he is. This is my gift. This is my laughter. This is what I talk about all the time. This is the most important thing to me. I love him more than I love anything else. This is my legacy. This is the way I am going to influence the world. I'm an old man. I'll be gone before long. But here is the way I will impact the world. You see it? This is a big day. They're laughing. If I were to put a phrase over chapter 21, I would say, laugh with me. Celebrate the impossible. Separate it from anything you can do. And keep it in the realm of what only God can do. But once you've done that, enjoy it. And let the world see how much God loves you. Now's a good time for, yeah, or something. If you're like old, you go, amen. If you're young, you go, that's right. If you're bored, just nod. <laughs> Which leads to chapter 22. God comes to Abraham and says, You know the promise, you know your gift, you know your laughter, the thing that is most important to you, the way that you are going to impact the world. Take it up and lay it down and kill it. There is no way out of this ask 
This feels preposterous until you put it in the context of a friendship that has been going on and on. Can you see it? Can you see it, people? The friendship is not only growing, it's starting to change. Here's why. Because when he tells Abram to lay his Isaac down, it is the first time that God never said, I'll give you something in return. It's the first time he never assured him. He never promised him anything. He just said, put him there and lay him down and consecrate him to me. He never said, I'll give you another one. I'll give him back. And then someday you'll be great. And the difference is important to me because when we talk about laying down what is important to us, that's what we often do, you guys. We often move right past the surrender and back into something like obedience. Obedience simply says, what does God want me to do? But in the back of obedience's mind, there is always the idea that if I do it, God will do something back. It's always there, isn't it? Because we know that God honors obedience. But you understand, as long as we keep our friendship with God in this language of deficiency and you're the benefactor, the relationship cannot change. But on the day we allow God to confront us and say, take the thing that you love the most, the thing that brings you the most delight, take your gift, the thing that you're really, really good at, your legacy, it's your way of impacting the world, and lay it down and consecrate it. And then he stops talking, suddenly we have a decision to make. Is this a negotiation? Or is this a surrender? Well, it's pretty clear where this is going, isn't it? Some of you have family that you dedicated one day, but you never surrendered them. You have in the back of your mind an agenda for your kids and your grandkids. You have the perfect life. I don't fault you for this. Man, I got the perfect idea of a life. It is natural to do this. It is maternal. It's paternal to say I want the best for my kids. And so when we dedicate them, we often bring them up here and say, by dedication, thank you, Lord, for giving them to me. But do we really mean I give them back? You do with them what you want. Some of you are this way about your marriage. Some have waited a long time to get married. They finally got married. And now that they have the marriage and they have the family, they protect it. Um... And it is, it's impervious to almost anything anybody challenges you to do. Because it's, I'm not faulting you for this. 
your family is a gift from God. But without diminishing your family, this is a call to lay it down. God can do this to us. And for some of you, it is your abilities, your talents. It's your degree, your body of work. It's what you are so good at. And again, we're not diminishing it in any way. It is a powerful tool. And you keep wanting to say, if I get better at this, how is that not in God's best interest? I don't know, but that's a negotiation, you see? You're negotiating again. The question is, can you lay it down and let it go? Some of us, it's our legacy. It is the thing that we have worked our whole life. It's our image, our reputation. That's a cheap word. But I think you know what I mean, don't you? The older you get and the cleaner your life has been, the more you tend to protect it. And what I hear God saying is, when you lay something down and you surrender it to me, you you don't do this with the idea that you'll get something better in return. And you don't do it with the idea that God will make you better at it. You let go. And the outcome is completely in God's hands. Do you see what I mean? This is a preposterous thing to ask. And yet, it is completely consistent with the way God makes friends. Here's why. Because when Abraham lays his Isaac down, Abraham's focus is no longer Isaac. Now it's the world. Now it's the world. And the terms of this friendship between God and this great patriarch has officially changed. <laughs> 